Chapter Four of Book Ninth of Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Ninth. Chapter Four A Bottle of Ink Which Only Succeeded in Whitening. That same day, or so to speak more accurately, that same evening, as Marius left the table and was on the point of withdrawing to his study, having a case to look over, Basque handed him a letter, saying, The person who wrote the letter is in the antechamber. Cosette had taken the grandfather's arm and was strolling in the garden. A letter, like a man, may have an unprepossessing exterior, coarse paper, coarsely folded, the very sight of certain misses of displeasing. The letter which Basque had brought was of this sort. Marius took it. It smelled of tobacco. Nothing evokes a memory like an odor. Marius recognized that tobacco. He looked at the superscription. To Monsieur... Monsieur le Baron Pontmercy, at his hotel. The recognition of the tobacco caused him to recognize the writing as well. It may be said that amazement has its lightning flashes. Marius was, as it were, illuminated by one of those flashes. The sense of smell, that mysterious aid to memory, had just revived a whole world within him. It was certainly the paper, the fashion of folding, the dull hint of ink. It was certainly the well-known handwriting, especially was it the same tobacco. The Jondrette garret rose before his mind. Thus, strange freak of chance, one of the two scents which he had so diligently sought, the one in connection with which he had lately again exerted so many efforts, and which he supposed to be forever lost, had come and presented itself to him of its own accord. He eagerly broke the seal and read, Monsieur le Baron, if the Supreme Being had given me the talents, I might have been Baron Thenard, member of the Institute, Academy of Sciences, but I am not. I only bear the same as him, happy if this memory recommends me to the excellence of your kindnesses. The benefit with which you will honor me will be reciprocal. I am in possession of a secret concerning an individual. This individual concerns you. I hold the secret at your disposal, desiring to have the honor to be useful to you. I will furnish you with the simple means of driving from your honorable family that individual who has no right there, Madame la Baronne being of lofty birth. The sanctuary of virtue cannot cohabit longer with crime without abdicating. I await in the antechamber the orders of Monsieur le Baron, with respect. The letter was signed Thinard. This signature was not false, it was merely a trifle abridged. Moreover, the rigmarole and the orthography completed the revelation. The certificate of origin was complete. Marius's emotion was profound. After a start of surprise, he underwent a feeling of happiness. If he could now but find the other man of whom he was in search, the man who had saved him, Marius, there would be nothing left for him to desire. He opened the drawer of his secretary, took out several banknotes, 
put them in his pocket, closed the secretary again, and rang the bell. Bosk half opened the door. "'Show the man in,' said Marius. Bosk announced. "'Monsieur Thénard.' A man entered. A fresh surprise for Marius, the man who entered was an utter stranger to him. This man, who was old, moreover, had a thick nose, his chin swathed in a cravat, green spectacles with a double screen of green taffeta over his eyes, and his hair was plastered and flattened down on his brow on a level with his eyebrows like the wigs of English coachmen in high life. His hair was grey. He was dressed in black from head to foot, in garments that were very threadbare but clean. A bunch of seals depending from his fob suggested the idea of a watch. He held in his hand an old hat. He walked in a bent attitude, and the curve in his spine augmented the profundity of his bow. The first thing that struck the observer was that this personage's coat, which was too ample, although carefully buttoned, had not been made for him. Here a short digression becomes necessary. There was in Paris at that epoch, in a low-lived old lodging, in the Rue Biatrellis, near the Arsenal, an ingenious Jew whose profession was to change villains into honest men. Not for too long, which might have proved embarrassing for the villain. The change was on sight, for a day or two, at the rate of thirty sous a day, by means of a costume which resembled the honesty of the world in general as nearly as possible. This costumer was called the Changer. The pickpockets of Paris had given him this name and knew him by no other. He had a tolerably complete wardrobe. The rags with which he tricked out people were almost probable. He had specialties and categories. On each nail of his shop hung a social status, threadbare and worn, here the suit of a magistrate, there the outfit of a curé, beyond the outfit of a banker, in one corner the costume of a retired military man, elsewhere the habiliments of a man of letters, and further on the dress of a statesman. This creature was the costumer of the immense drama which knavery plays in Paris. His lair was the green room whence Thess emerged and into which Ruggery retreated. A tattered knave arrived at this dressing-room, deposited his thirty sous, and selected, according to the part which he wished to play, the costume which suited him, and, on descending the stairs once more, the knave was a somebody. On the following day the clothes were faithfully returned, and the changer, who trusted the thieves with everything, was never robbed. There was one inconvenience about these clothes. They did not fit not having been made for those who wore them. They were too tight for one, too loose for another, and did not adjust themselves to any one. Every pickpocket who exceeded or fell short of the human average was ill at his ease in the changer's costumes. It was necessary that one should not be either too fat or too lean. The changer had foreseen only ordinary men. He had taken the measure of the species from the first rascal who came to hand who was neither stout nor thin, neither tall nor short, hence adaptations which were sometimes difficult and from which the changer's clients extricated themselves as best they might. So much the worse for the exceptions. The suit of the statesman, for instance, black from head to foot and consequently proper, would have been too large for Pitt and too small for Castile Cecilia. The costume of a statesman was designated as follows in the changer's catalogue. We copy a coat of black cloth, trousers of black wool, 
a silk waistcoat, boots, and linen. On the margin there stood X Ambassador and a note which we also copy. In a separate box, a neatly frizzled peruque, green glasses, seals, and two small quills, an inch long, wrapped in cotton. All this belonged to the statesman, the ex ambassador. This whole costume was, if we may so express ourselves, debilitated. The seams were white, a vague buttonhole yawned at one of the elbows. Moreover, one of the coat buttons was missing on the breast, but this was only detail, as the hand of the statesman should always be thrust into his coat and laid upon his heart. Its function was to conceal the absent button. If Marius had been familiar with the occult institutions of Paris, he would instantly have recognized, upon the back of the visitor whom Basque had just shown in, the statesman's suit borrowed from the pick-me-down that shop of the changer. Marius's disappointment on beholding another man than the one whom he expected to see turned to the newcomer's disadvantage. He surveyed him from head to foot, while that personage made exaggerated bows, and demanded in a curt tone, what do you want? The man replied in an amiable grin, of which the caressing smile of a crocodile will furnish some idea. It seems to me impossible that I should not have already had the honor of seeing Monsieur Le Baron in society. I think I actually did meet Monsieur personally several years ago at the house of Madame de Princesse Bagrachon, and in the drawing-rooms of his lordship, the Vicomte de Bray, peer of France. It is always a good bit of tactics in knavery to pretend to recognize someone whom one does not know. Marius paid attention to the manner of this man's speech. He spied on his accent and gesture, but his disappointment increased. The pronunciation was nasal and absolutely unlike the dry, shrill tone which he had expected. He was utterly routed. "'I know neither Madame Bagratin nor Monsieur Dubray,' said he. "'I have never set foot in the house of either of them in my life.' The reply was ungracious. The parsonage, determined to be gracious at any cost, insisted. "'Then it must have been at Chateaubriand that I have seen Monsieur. I know Chateaubriand very well. He is very affable. He sometimes says to me, "'Thenard, my friend, won't you drink a glass of wine with me?' Marius's brow grew more and more severe. "'I have never had the honor of being received by Monsieur de Chateaubriand. Let us cut it short. What do you want?' The man bowed lower at that harsh voice. "'Monsieur le Baron, deign to listen to me. There is in America, in a district near Panama, a village called La Joya. That village is composed of a single house, a large square house of three stories, built of bricks dried in the sun, each side of the square five hundred feet in length, each story retreating twelve feet back of the story below, in such a manner as to leave in front a terrace which makes the circus of the edifice, in the center an inner court where the provisions and munitions are kept, no windows, loopholes, no doors, ladders, ladders to mount from the ground to the first terrace, and from the first to the second, and from the second to the third, ladders to descend to the inner court, no doors to the chambers, trap-doors, no staircases to the chambers, ladders. In the evening the traps are closed. The ladders are withdrawn, carbines and blunderbusses trained from the loopholes. No means of entering. A house by day, a citadel by night. Eight hundred inhabitants. That is the village. Why so many precautions? 
because the country is dangerous it is full of cannibals then why do people go there because the country is marvellous gold is found there what are you driving at interrupted marius who had passed from disappointment to impatience at this monsieur le baron i am an old and weary diplomat ancient civilization has thrown me on my own devices i want to try savages well monsieur le baron egotism is the law of the world the proletarian peasant woman who toils by the day turns round when the diligence passes by the peasant proprietress who toils in her field does not turn around the dog of the poor man barks at the rich man the dog of the rich man barks at the poor man each one for himself self-interest that's the object of men gold that's the lodestone what then finish i should like to go and establish myself at la joya there are three of us i have my spouse and my young lady a very beautiful girl the journey is long and costly i need a little money what concern is that of mine demanded marius the stranger stretched his neck out of his cravat a gesture characteristic of the vulture and replied with an augmented smile has not monsieur le baron perused my letter there was some truth in this the fact is that the contents of the epistle had slipped marius's mind he had seen the writing rather than read the letter he could hardly recall it but a moment ago a fresh start had been given him he had noted that detail my spouse and my young lady he fixed a penetrating glance at the stranger an examining judge could not have done the look better he almost lay in wait for him he confined himself to replying state the case precisely the stranger inserted his two hands in both his fobs drew himself up without straightening his dorsal column but scrutinizing marius in his turn with the green gaze of his spectacles so be it monsieur le baron i will be precise i have a secret to sell to you a secret a secret which concerns me somewhat what is the secret marius scrutinized the man more and more as he listened to him i commence gratis said the stranger you will see that i am interesting speak monsieur le baron you have in your house a thief and an assassin marius shuddered in my house no said he the imperturbable stranger brushed his hat with his elbow and went on an assassin and a thief remark monsieur le baron that i do not hear speak of ancient deeds deeds of the past which have lapsed which can be effaced by limitation before the law and by repentance before god i speak of recent deeds of actual facts as still unknown to justice at this hour i continue this man has insinuated himself into your confidence and almost into your family under a false name i am about to tell you his real name and to tell it to you for nothing i am listening his name is jean valjean i know it i am going to tell you equally for nothing who he is say on he is an ex-convict i know it you know it since i have had the honor of telling you no i knew it before marius's cold tone that double reply of i know it his laconicism which was not favorable to dialogue stirred up some smouldering wrath in the stranger he launched a furious glance on the sly at marius which was instantly extinguished 
Rapid as it was, this glance was of the kind which a man recognizes when he has once beheld it. It did not escape Marius. Certain flashes can only proceed from certain souls. The eye, that vent-hole of the thought, glows with it. Spectacles hid nothing. Try putting a pane of glass over hell. The stranger resumed with a smile. I will not permit myself to contradict Monsieur le Baron. In any case, you ought to perceive that I am well informed. Now, what I have to tell you is known to myself alone. This concerns the fortune of Madame le Baron. It is an extraordinary secret. It is for sale. I make you the first offer of it, cheap, twenty thousand francs. I know that secret as well as the others, said Marius. The personage felt the necessity of lowering his price a trifle. Monsieur le Baron, say ten thousand francs and I will speak. I repeat to you that there is nothing which you can tell me. I know what you wish to say to me. A fresh flash gleamed in the man's eye, he exclaimed. But I must dine to-day nevertheless. It is an extraordinary secret, I tell you, Monsieur le Baron. I will speak. I speak. Give me twenty francs. Marius gazed intently at him. I know your extraordinary secret, just as I knew Jean Valjean's name, just as I know your name. My name? Yes. That is not difficult, Monsieur le Baron. I had the honor to write to you and to tell it to you. Thenard. Dear. Hey? Thenardier. Who's that? In danger, the porcupine bristles up, the beetle feigns death, the old guard forms in a square. This man burst into laughter. Then he flicked a grin of dust from the sleeve of his coat with a fillip. Marius continued, You are also Jondrette the workman, Fabento the comedian, Genflot the poet, Don Alvarez the Spaniard, and Mistress Bilazard. Mistress, what? And you kept a pothouse of Montfermeil. A pothouse? Never! And I tell you that your name is Thernadere. I deny it, and that you are a rascal. Here! and Marius drew a banknote from his pocket and flung it in his face. "'Thanks. Pardon me. Five hundred francs, Monsieur le Baron.' And the man, overcome, bowed, seized the note, and examined it. Five hundred francs,' he began again, taken aback. And he stammered in a low voice, "'An honest rustler.' Then brusquely, "'Well, so be it,' he exclaimed. "'Let us put ourselves at our ease.' and, with the agility of a monkey, flinging back his hair, tearing off his spectacles, and withdrawing from his nose by sleight of hand the two quills, of which mention was recently made, and which the reader has also met with on another page of this book, he took off his face as the man takes off his hat. His eye lighted up, his uneven brow, with hollows in some places and bumps in others, hideously wrinkled at the top, was laid bare. His nose had become as sharp as a beak. The fierce and sagacious profile of the man of prey reappeared. Monsieur le Baron is ineffable, he said in a clear voice, whence all nasal twang had disappeared. I am Thenardier. And he straightened up his crooked back. Thenardier, for it was really he, was strangely surprised. He would have been troubled, had he been capable of such a thing. He had come to bring astonishment, and it was he who had received it. This humiliation had been worth five hundred francs to him, and taking it all in all, he accepted it, but he was none the less bewildered. 
He beheld this Baron Pontmercy for the first time, and in spite of his disguise, this Baron Pontmercy recognized him, and recognized him thoroughly. And not only was this Baron perfectly informed as to Thernadere, but he seemed well posted as to Jean Valjean. Who was this almost beardless young man, who was so glacial and so generous, who knew people's names, who knew all their names, and who opened his purse to them? who bullied rascals like a judge, and who paid them like a dupe. Thernadier, the reader, will remember, although he had been Marius's neighbor, had never seen him, which is not unusual in Paris. He had formerly, in a vague way, heard his daughters talk of a very poor young man named Marius who lived in the house. He had written to him, without knowing him, the letter with which the reader is acquainted. No connection between that Marius and Monsieur le Baron Pontmercy was possible in his mind. As for the name Pontmercy, it will be recalled that, on the battlefield of Waterloo, he had only heard the last two syllables, for which he always entertained the legitimate scorn which one owes to what is merely an expression of thanks. However, through his daughter Azelma, who had started on the scent of the married pair on the 16th of February, and through his own personal researches, he had succeeded in learning many things, and from the depths of his own gloom he had contrived to grasp more than one mysterious clue. He had discovered, by dint of industry, or at least by dint of induction, he had guessed who the man was whom he had encountered on a certain day in the Grand Sewer. From the man he had easily reached the name. He knew that Madame le Baron Pontmercy was Cosette, but he meant to be discreet in that quarter. Who was Cosette? He did not know exactly himself. He did, indeed, catch an inkling of illegitimacy. The history of Fantine had always seemed to him equivocal. But what was the use of talking about that? In order to cause himself to be paid for his silence? He had, or thought he had, better wares than that for sale. And according to all appearances, if he were to come and make to the Baron Pontmercy his revelation and without proof, your wife is a bastard, the only result would be to attract the boot of the husband toward the loins of the revealer. From Thernadere's point of view, the conversation with Marius had not yet begun. He ought to have drawn back, to have modified his strategy, to have abandoned his position, to have changed his front, but nothing essential had been compromised as yet and he had five hundred francs in his pocket. Moreover, he had something decisive to say, and even against this very well-informed and well-armed Baron Pontmercy, he felt himself strong. For men of Thenadere's nature, every dialogue is a combat. In the one in which he was about to engage, what was his situation? He did not know to whom he was speaking, but he did know of what he was speaking. He made this rapid review of his inner forces, and after having said, I am Thenardere, he waited. Marius had become thoughtful. So he had hold of Thenardere at last. That man whom he had so greatly desired to find was before him. He could honor Colonel Pontmercy's recommendation. He felt humiliated that the hero should have owed anything to this villain, and that the letter of change drawn from the depths of the tomb by his father upon him, Marius, had been protested up to that day. It also seemed to him, in the complex state of his mind toward Thernadere, that there was occasion to avenge the colonel for the misfortune of having been saved by such a rascal. In any case, he was content. 
he was about to deliver the colonel's shade from this unworthy creditor at last, and it seemed to him that he was on the point of rescuing his father's memory from the debtor's prison. By the side of this duty there was another, to elucidate, if possible, the source of Cosette's fortune. The opportunity appeared to present itself. Perhaps Thernadea knew something. It might prove useful to see the bottom of this man. He commenced with this. Thernadere had caused the honest rustler to disappear in his fob, and was gazing at Marius with a gentleness that was almost tender. Marius broke the silence. Thernadere, I have told you your name. Now, would you like to have me tell you your secret, the one that you came here to reveal to me? I have information of my own also. You shall see that I know more about it than you do. Jean Valjean, as you have said, is an assassin and a thief. A thief because he robbed a wealthy manufacturer whose ruin he brought about, an assassin because he assassinated police agent Javert. I don't understand, sir, ejaculated Thernadere. I will make myself intelligible. In a certain arrondissement of the Pas de Calis there was, in 1822, a man who had fallen out with justice, and who, under the name of Monsieur Madeleine, had regained his status and rehabilitated himself. This man had become a just man in the full force of the term. In a trade, the manufacturer of black glass goods, he had made the fortune of an entire city. As far as his personal fortune was concerned, he made that also, but as a secondary matter, and in some sort, by accident. He was the foster father of the poor. He founded hospitals, opened schools, visited the sick, dowered young girls, supported widows, and adopted orphans. He was like the guardian angel of the country. He refused the cross. He was appointed mayor. A liberated convict knew the secret of a penalty incurred by this man in former days. He denounced him and had him arrested, and profited by the arrest to come to Paris and cause the banker Lafitte. I have the fact from the cashier himself. By means of a false signature, to hand over to him the sum of over half a million which belonged to Monsieur Madeleine. This convict who robbed Monsieur Madeleine was Jean Valjean. As for the other fact, you have nothing to tell me about it either. Jean Valjean killed the agent Javert. He shot him with a pistol. I, the person who is speaking to you, was present. Thernadere cast upon Marius the sovereign glance of a conquered man who lays his hand once more upon the victory, and who has just regained in one instant all the ground which he has lost. But the smile returned instantly. The inferior's triumph in the presence of his superior must be wheedling. Thernadere contented himself with saying to Marius, Monsieur le Baron, we are on the wrong track. And he emphasized this phrase by making his bunch of seals execute an expressive whirl. What? broke forth Marius. Do you dispute that? These are facts. They are chimeras. The confidence with which Monsieur Le Baron honors me renders it my duty to tell him so. Truth and justice before all things. I do not like to see folks accused unjustly. Monsieur Le Baron, Jean Valjean did not rob Monsieur Madeleine, and Jean Valjean did not kill Javert. This is too much. How is this? For two reasons. What are they? Speak. This is the first. He did not rob Monsieur Madeleine, because it is Jean Valjean himself who is Monsieur Madeleine. What tale are you telling me? And this is the second. He did not assassinate Javert. 
because the person who killed Javert was Javert. What do you mean to say? That Javert committed suicide. Prove it! Prove it! cried Marius beside himself. Thernadere resumed, scanning his phrase after the manner of the ancient Alexandrine measure. Police agent Javert was found drowned under a boat of the Pont au Chan. But prove it! Thernadere drew from his pocket a large envelope of grey paper which seemed to contain sheets folded in different sizes. I have my papers, he said calmly. And he added, Monsieur le Baron, in your interest, I desired to know Jean Valjean thoroughly. I say that Jean Valjean and Monsieur Madeleine are one and the same man, and I say that Javert had no other assassin than Javert. If I speak, it is because I have proofs, not manuscript proofs. Writing is suspicious. Handwriting is complacent, but printed proofs. As he spoke, Thernadere extracted from the envelope two copies of newspapers, yellow, faded, and strongly saturated with tobacco. One of these two newspapers, broken at every fold and falling into rags, seemed much older than the other. Two facts, two proofs, remarked Thernadere, and he offered the two newspapers unfolded to Marius. The reader is acquainted with these two papers. One, the most ancient, a number of the Drapeau Blanc of the 25th of July, 1823, the text of which can be seen in the first volume, established the identity of Monsieur Madeleine and Jean Valjean. The other, a monitor of the 15th of June, 1832, announced the suicide of Javert, adding that it appeared from a verbal report of Javert to the prefect that, Having been taken prisoner in the barricade of the Rue de Chavier, he had owed his life to the magnanimity of an insurgent, who, holding him under his pistol, had fired into the air instead of blowing out his brains. Marius read. He had evidence, a certain date, irrefragable proof. These two newspapers had not been printed expressly for the purpose of backing up Thernadere's statements. The note printed in the Montier had been an administrative communication from the prefecture of police. Marius could not doubt. The information of the cashier clerk had been false, and he himself had been deceived. Jean Valjean, who had suddenly grown grand, emerged from his cloud. Marius could not repress a cry of joy. Well, then this unhappy wretch is an admirable man. The whole of that fortune really belonged to him. He is Madeleine, the providence of a whole countryside. He is Jean Valjean, Javert's savior. He is a hero. He is a saint. He is not a saint, and he's not a hero, said Thernadere. He's an assassin and a robber. And he added, in the tone of a man who begins to feel that he possesses some authority, let us be calm. Robber, assassin. Those words which Marius thought had disappeared and which returned fell upon him like an ice-cold shower-bath. "'Again!' said he. "'Always!' ejaculated Thernadere. "'Jean Valjean did not rob Madeleine, but he is a thief. He did not kill Javert, but he is a murderer.' "'Will you speak,' retorted Marius, "'of that miserable theft committed forty years ago and expiated, as your own newspapers prove, by a whole life of repentance and of self-abnegation and of virtue?' I say assassin and thief, Monsieur le Baron. I repeat that I am speaking of actual facts. 
What I have to reveal to you is absolutely unknown. It belongs to unpublished matter, and perhaps you will find it in the source of the fortune so skillfully presented to Madame le Baron by Jean Valjean. I say skillfully because, by a gift of that nature, it would not be so very unskillful to slip into an honorable house whose comforts one would then share, and at the same stroke to conceal one's crime and to enjoy one's theft, to bury one's name and to create for oneself a family. I might interrupt you at this point, said Marius, but go on. Monsieur le Baron, I tell you all, leaving the recompense to your generosity, this secret is worth massive gold. You will say to me, Why do not you apply to Jean Valjean? For a very simple reason. I know that he has stripped himself, and stripped himself in your favor. And I consider the combination ingenious, but he has no longer a son. He would show me his empty hands, and since I am in need of some money for my trip to La Joya, I prefer you, you who will have it all, to him who has nothing. I am a little fatigued. Permit me to take a chair. Marius seated himself and motioned to him to do the same. Thernadere installed himself on a tufted chair, picked up his two newspapers, thrust them back into their envelope, and murmured as he pecked at the drapeau blanc with his nail. It cost me a good deal of trouble to get this one. That done, he crossed his legs and stretched himself out on the back of the chair, an attitude characteristic of people who are sure of what they are saying. Then he entered upon his subject gravely, emphasizing his words. Monsieur le Baron, on the 6th of June, 1832, about a year ago, on the day of the insurrection, a man was in the Grand Sewer of Paris at the point where the sewer enters the Seine between the Pont des Invalides and the Pont des Genats. Marius abruptly drew his chair closer to that of Thernadere. Thernadere noticed this movement and continued with the deliberation of an orator who holds his interlocutor and who feels his adversary palpitating under his words. This man, forced to conceal himself and for reasons, moreover, which are foreign to politics, had adopted the sewer as his domicile and had a key to it. It was, I repeat, on the 6th of June. It might have been eight o'clock in the evening. The man hears a noise in the sewer. Greatly surprised, he hides himself and lies in wait. It was the sound of footsteps. Someone was walking in the dark and coming in his direction. Strange to say, there was another man in the sewer beside himself. The grating of the outlet from the sewer was not far off. A little light which fell through it permitted him to recognize the newcomer and to see that the man was carrying something on his back. He was walking in a bent attitude. The man who was walking in a bent attitude was an ex-convict, and what he was dragging on his shoulders was a corpse. Assassination caught in the very act, if ever there was such a thing. As for the theft, that is understood. One does not kill a man gratis. This convict was on his way to fling the body into the river. One fact is to be noticed, that before reaching the exit grating, this convict, who had come a long distance in the sewer, must necessarily have encountered a frightful quagmire where it seems as though he might have left the body. But the sewerman would have found the assassinated man the very next day while at work in the quagmire, and that did not suit the assassin's plans. He had preferred to traverse that quagmire with his burden, and his exertions must have been terrible, for it is impossible to risk one's life more completely. 
I don't understand how he could have come out of that alive. Marius's chair approached still nearer. Then Herdea took advantage of this to draw a long breath. He went on, Monsieur le Baron, a sewer is not the Champ de Mars. One lacks everything there, even room. When two men are there, they must meet. That is what happened. The man domiciled there and the passer-by were forced to bid each other good day, and greatly to the regret of both. The passer-by said to the inhabitant, You see what I have on my back? I must get out. You have the key. Give it to me. That convict was a man of terrible strength. There was no way of refusing. Nevertheless, the man who had the key parlayed simply to gain time. He examined the dead man, but he could see nothing except that the latter was young, well-dressed, with an air of being rich and all disfigured with blood. While talking, the man contrived to tear and pull off behind, without the assassin perceiving of it, a bit of the assassinated man's coat. A document for conviction, you understand, a means of recovering the trace of things and of bringing home the crime to the criminal. He put this document for conviction in his pocket, after which he opened the grating and made the man go out with his embarrassment on his back, closed the grating again, and ran off, not caring to be mixed up with the remainder of the adventure, and above all, not wishing to be present when the assassin threw the assassinated man into the river. Now you comprehend? The man who was carrying the corpse was Jean Valjean. The one who had the key is speaking to you at this moment. And the piece of the coat? Thernadere completed his phrase by drawing from his pocket and holding, on a level with his eyes, nipped between his two thumbs and his two forefingers, a strip of torn black cloth all covered with dark spots. Marius had sprung to his feet, pale, hardly able to draw his breath. With his eyes riveted on the fragment of black cloth and without uttering a word, without taking his eyes from that fragment, he retreated to the wall and fumbled with his right hand along the wall for a key which was in the lock of a cupboard near the chimney. He found the key, opened the cupboard, plunged his arm into it without looking, and without his frightened gaze quitting the rag which Thernadere still held outspread. But Thernadere continued, Monsieur le Baron, I have the strongest of reasons for believing that the assassinated young man was an opulent stranger lured into a trap by Jean Valjean and the bearer of an enormous sum of money. "'The young man was myself, and here is the coat!' cried Marius, and he flung upon the floor an old black coat all covered with blood. Then, snatching the fragment from the hands of Thernadier, he crouched down over the coat and laid the torn morsel against the tattered skirt. The rent fitted exactly, and the strip completed the coat. Thernadier was petrified. This is what he thought. I'm struck all of a heap. Marius rose to his feet trembling, despairing, radiant. He fumbled in his pocket and stalked furiously to Thernadere, presenting to him and almost thrusting in his face his fist filled with banknotes for five hundred and a thousand francs. You are an infamous wretch. You are a liar, a culminator, a villain. You came to accuse that man. You have only justified him. You wanted to ruin him. You have only succeeded in glorifying him, and it is you who are the thief, and it is you who are the assassin. I saw you, Thernadere Jondrette, in that lair in the Rue de l'Hospital. I know enough about you to send you to the galleys, and even further if I choose. Here are a thousand francs, bully that you are. And he flung a thousand-franc note 
at Thernadere. Ah, Jondrette Thernadere, vile rascal, let this serve you a lesson, you dealer in second-hand secrets, merchant of mysteries, rummager of the shadows, wretch. Take these five hundred francs and get out of here. Waterloo protects you. Waterloo, growled Thernadere, pocketing the five hundred francs along with the thousand. Yes, assassin, you there saved the life of a colonel. Of a general, said Thernadere, elevating his head. Of a colonel, repeated Marius in a rage. I wouldn't give a halfpenny for a general, and you come here to commit infamies. I tell you that you have committed all crimes. Go, disappear. Only be happy, that is all I desire. Ah, monster, here we have three thousand francs more. Take them. You will depart tomorrow for America with your daughter, for your wife is dead, you abominable liar. I shall watch over your departure, you ruffian, and at that moment I will count out to you twenty thousand francs. Go get yourself hung elsewhere. Monsieur le Baron, replied Thernadere, bowing to the very earth, eternal gratitude. And Thernadere left the room, understanding nothing, stupefied and delighted with this sweet crushing beneath sacks of gold, and with that thunder which had burst forth over his head in bank bills. Struck by lightning he was, but he was also content, and he would have been greatly angered had he not a lightning-rod to ward off such lightning as that. Let us finish with this man at once. Two days after the events which we are at this moment narrating, he set out, thanks to Marius's care, for America, under a false name, with his daughter Azelma, furnished with a new draft on New York for twenty thousand francs. The moral wretchedness of Thernadere, the bourgeois who had missed his vocation, was irremediable. He was in America what he had been in Europe. Contact with an evil man sometimes suffices to corrupt a good action and to cause evil things to spring from it. With Marius's money, Thernadere set up as a slave dealer. As soon as Thernadere had left the house, Marius rushed to the garden where Cosette was still walking. Cosette! "'Cosette!' he cried. "'Come! Come quick! Let us go! Basque, a carriage! Cosette, come! Oh, my God! It was he who saved my life! Let us not lose a minute! Put on your shawl!' Cosette thought him mad and obeyed. He could not breathe. He laid his hand on his heart to restrain its throbbing. He paced back and forth with huge strides. He embraced Cosette. "'Ah, oh, Cosette! I am an unhappy wretch!' said he. Marius was bewildered. He began to catch a glimpse in Jean Valjean of some indescribably lofty and melancholy figure, an unheard-of virtue, supreme and sweet, humble in its immensity, appeared to him. The convict was transfigured into Christ. Marius was dazzled by this prodigy. He did not know precisely what he beheld, but it was grand. In an instant a hackney carriage stood in front of the door. Marius helped Cosette in and darted in himself. "'Driver,' said he, "'Rue de l'Homme-Armand, number seven. The carriage drove off. "'Ah, oh, what happiness!' ejaculated Cosette. "'Rue de l'Homme-Armand, I did not dare to speak to you of that. "'We are going to see Monsieur Jean. "'Thy father, Cosette, thy father more than ever. "'Cosette, I guess it. "'You told me that you had never received the letter that I sent you by Gavrochet. "'It must have fallen into his hands. "'Cosette, he went back to the barricade to save me.' As it is necessity with him to be an angel, he saved others also. He saved Javert. He rescued me from that gulf to give me to you. He carried me on his back through that frightful sewer. 
Ah, I am a monster of ingratitude. Cosette, after having been your providence, he became mine. Just imagine, there was a terrible quagmire, enough to drown one a hundred times over, to drown one in mire. Cosette, he made me traverse it. I was unconscious. I saw nothing. I heard nothing. I could know nothing of my own adventure. We are going to bring him back, to take him with us, whether he is willing or not. He shall never leave us again. If only he is at home, provided only that we can find him, I will pass the rest of my life in venerating him. Yes, that is how it should be, do you see, Cosette? Gavroche must have delivered my letter to him. All is explained. You understand. Cosette did not understand a word. You are right, she said to him. Meanwhile, the carriage rolled on. End of chapter 4, book ninth.